Welcome to our Painesville Assembly of God podcast. Our desire is to connect people to a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. If this message touches your heart, we'd love to hear about it. Email us at info at or visit PainesvilleAG.com. We pray that this message will be an encouragement to your faith. Today we're finishing up our series in Daniel, and how many have ever heard the phrase that uh, those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it? Anybody ever heard that before? I, I, believe, that's, I believe that's true. I believe that's something that every generation has to learn and uh, oftentimes fails to do so. In fact, one author uh, had a, a bird's eye view of what he called the cycle of men and cultures. And listen, if this sounds familiar, this is what he wrote. Typically, cultures go from bondage to spiritual faith. And then from spiritual faith to great courage, and from courage to liberty, and from liberty to abundance, and from abundance to selfishness, from selfishness to complacency, from complacency to apathy, from apathy to dependency, and from dependency to bondage. It seems to be the cycle. It's a cycle that we have to be careful of. No wonder that God told his people in the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, and you shall remember the way in which the Lord has led you these many years. In fact, throughout the Old Testament, oftentimes what we hear are the words remember, remember, remember. Why? Because we have a tendency to forget. As I've said before, we oftentimes remember the things that we should forget and forget the things we should remember. That's something that oftentimes happens in the book of Daniel chapter 11 as we're going to survey through it quickly and we're going to get to chapter 12 and finish the series today and that's going to be a tall task. But I want to just encourage you that much of what we're going to look at in the book of Daniel chapter 11 and first, in fact the first 35 verses are historical. They've already been historically fulfilled. For Daniel, they were prophecy. When Daniel had, had, had heard the vision, and this is the fourth and final vision today that we're getting into, they were prophetic. They were future. But for us, the first 35 verses are historical and have a historical fulfillment of great detail again. And unless you've studied these periods of history, you oftentimes don't understand what is in Daniel chapter 11 as we have seen. In fact, because of history, it's kind of like uh, the kid that was in school, and I found this to be a fun illustration with school starting. He was getting bad grades in history, and his, his buddy looked at him and he said, hey, how come you're flunking history? And he said, because the teacher keeps asking about things that happened before I was born. Right? History. And these things are history for us. They were future for Daniel. <coughs> Excuse me. You may remember in our study... Daniel was, was reading the book of uh, uh, the prophet Jeremiah. When we were back in Daniel chapter 9, he was reading from the prophet Jeremiah when he had a vision. And it was a vision of, of 70 weeks of years. And we explained what 70 weeks of years. If you weren't with us, I encourage you to go back because in understanding this particular chapter of chapter 11, we have to understand how it fits within that context as Daniel was praying, he was seeing that the end of the 70 years of exile and captivity that God had said through the prophet Jeremiah was coming to an end. 
And Daniel was praying into that promise that God was, would answer, release his people back to go back to their homeland, to go back to Israel, to go back to Jerusalem, and to begin to rebuild. And he was praying into that and believing for that. He began to drop down to his knees. But what happened was that although the people returned, they returned in such small numbers as we talked about last week. And they, they started the work, but the work was so overwhelming and the persecution was so much that they never really got it going again. The temple was not really getting going. The progress was not being made. People had hung back in Babylon. They had stayed back because of apathy. They had stayed back because they were comfortable. They had stayed back because that's where they were. They weren't willing to go on a missions trip and, and, and rebuild the, the city of Jerusalem once again. And so Daniel begins to hit his knees in chapter 10 as we talked about. He prayed. Daniel was a man of prayer and he began to pray and he began to mourn and he began to fast for three weeks, 21 days. And finally the answer came, but it wasn't the answer that he expected. In fact, the answer that he received was Daniel, 70 years, your people have been in captivity. They've been in another place. It's been difficult, but I've got to tell you that that is not the end of their difficulty. In fact, there is going to be pain and suffering and sorrow and a purging all the way up to history until I return in the end, until the Messiah's kingdom returns. And that's where the answer comes here in chapters 11 and 12. So let me give you a lens in which to view this. As I mentioned in chapter 9, for those of you that have been with us, the prophecy of 70 weeks fits. Here, 70 weeks of years are determined for your people in your holy city. And that's what Daniel chapter 11, 1 to 35, the prophecies fit here in the first 69 of those weeks. That's what, what we're going to look at. Verses 2 to 35 are all about what happens during the 69 weeks. And then there's a gap. And then it's going to pick up. And in, and in, in that latter half, verses 36 to 45 and going into Daniel chapter 12, we're going to see events and conflicts that happen during the 70th week, which is yet to come, that we call the tribulation period. Now, let me give you a, a note of some sort and a sort of warning. This is a very detailed chapter. We're not going to get into all of the details, but I want you to know that in these 35 verses, the first 35 verses of history, 135 prophecies were fulfilled to great detail. 135 prophecies in just 35 verses historically have been fulfilled in great detail. And as we've discovered in these visions and dreams in the book of Daniel, these prophecies and the fulfillment of the detail of these prophecies give us a confidence in God's word and a greater confidence to our faith. So because of the time period that we've, we've covered many, we've covered a lot of this historical fulfillment today, I just want to kind of give us an overview, kind of an understanding of what we're looking at. So if you are reading through the book of Daniel, get to Daniel chapter 11, I want to give you some cliff notes today, all right? How many love cliff notes when you were studying? Let me give you a cliff notes version today of what we're looking at. There are four sections of history that are in these 35 verses, four sections of history. Section number one deals with... Uh, deals with the regents of Persia, the regents of 
Persia. Verse 2 says this, Now then I tell you the truth, three more kings will arrive in Persia, and then a fourth. If you remember, when Daniel, in the beginning of Daniel chapter 10, it was the third year of Cyrus who was the king of Persia. He was the first true king of Persia, where Darius was given uh, leadership over the region of Babylon in the Persian kingdom. So when the Persian kingdom came to be, in the third year, this is where Daniel is. And so what we see here is that this vision begins where three more kings will arrive in Persia. So there's Cyrus, there's three more, and then there'll be a fourth who will be far richer than the others. And when he has gained power by his wealth, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. And if you know anything about what we've been talking about in the statues and anything about history, you know that following Persia was the, the Greek empire. But we have these regions of Persia. And we know by history that following Cyrus was first his son, uh, Cambyses. He was the son of Cyrus. He was then overthrown by a usurper that took the name of his own son, uh, Smyrtus. And he was actually called Pseudo-Smyrtus. He was called False Smyrtus. He wasn't a real son, but he took the name of Cyrus's son, Cambus's son. Imagine that. That's crazy. Then the third king was Darius Histapus. I can't even say these names. And if you studied anything about Persian history, you recognize his name immediately. And then following him... It's probably the one that we know most about because we see his name in scripture and his name was Xerxes. Xerxes. Now he was not the last, but he was the fourth that we're talking about. And Xerxes was the great uh, king of Persia. In fact, where we hear his name is in the book of Esther. The book of Nehemiah, the book of Esther. And in fact, in the book of Esther, we see his great riches and wealth because Esther chapter 1 and verse 4 tells us for a full 180 days, he displayed his vast wealth of his kingdom and splendor and glory of his majesty. He had a huge feast, if you remember, a lot, I mean, a lot of food, a lot of drinking, a lot of partying, a lot for 180 days. That's how rich he was just to display his wealth. He became strong through his riches, and because of that, he got puffed up, and he began to make raids against the Greeks. He stirred up Greece, and he created an immediate response that a guy by the name of Alexander the Great then made war against the Persians. So the second section that we have is Daniel eleven three to 4, and it's the rulers of Greece. Let's read it. Then a mighty king will arise, who will rule with great power and do as he pleases, and after he has arisen, his empire will be broken up and parceled out towards the four winds of heaven. It will not go to his descendants, nor will it have, nor, excuse me, will it have the power he exercised, because his empire will be uprooted and given to others. So the mighty king is who? We know this, we've talked about this, Alexander the Great. Right? He was the, he was, he was the mighty king. He will arise. He will do what he pleases, but we know what happened. What? At age 33, what happened to him? He died. He conquered everything. And he was mourning over the fact there were no more worlds to conquer. And then he died early. And he didn't have a son. And because he didn't have air for the air to go through, the, it was what? Broken up into the four winds. What? His four generals, remember? His four generals, the king was broken up, and his four generals were Cassander, Lycomus, Ptolemy, and Seleucus. And so Cassander took Macedonia, and, and, and what was Alexander the Great's father? What was his name? Philip of Macedon. So Macedonia was his empire. 
So, so uh, Cassander took, took what was original Greece, original Philip of Macedon, king of Macedonia, king of Macedon, and Macedonia region, the kingdom of Alexander's father. Lycomus took Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey and the Thracian Empire. Seleucus took Syria and, Babylon, and Babylonia, and Ptolemy, the fourth general, took Egypt, North Africa, and Arabia. And from here, we have now the largest section of history that we're going to move into. So the third section that follows, Daniel 11, 5 to 20, deals with these four generals, but in particular, two of these generals and the succession that follows. And so this next section is called the rivals, north and south. I don't have time to read through Daniel 11, 5 to 20. I want to encourage you, go ahead and, and read it on your own. It's a fascinate, fascinating piece of history, and there's a lot of the prophecies that are fulfilled in great detail in this section. But let me just, let me just kind of give you a, an overview of the course of two particular empires, the north and the south of these empires. Again, the king of the south under Egypt was Ptolemy. He was the one who had Egypt and North Africa and Arabia, and his kingdom was down to the south. The king of the north is in the area of Syria, and it was run by the Seleucids. Seleucus was one of the generals under Alexander. So these two kingdoms, Egypt and Syria, they fought back and forth for over 130 years. 130 years. And why is that so important? Because what is right in the middle of Syria and Egypt? What falls right in the middle? Israel. So Israel, over the course of 130 years, became a battleground area. When they wanted to fight, they'd oftentimes end up fighting in Israel. Oftentimes, each one taking over Israel in power, and Israel kind of became the tug-of-war right in the middle struggle for who was going to rule Israel, who was going to take Israel's territory. And the account of these kingdoms is given because of Israel's involvement and God's primary concern for Israel. And we get a marvelous detail of history that is, that is confirmed. And can I just point something out geographically for us? I want to point something out. Biblically, why is Israel, why even today in the Middle East, why is there such a conflict over Israel and over Jerusalem? Why is there such a conflict over, over this area? Well, let me read something to you from the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 5 and verse 5. This is what the sovereign Lord says. This is Jerusalem, which I have set in the center of nations with countries all around her. Here's the problem. When we read the Bible as Americans, as people in the West, we tend to read the Bible as if America is central to the world. We are the superpower. We are the ones who are the, the leader of the free world, right? And let me tell you something. I love our country, but biblically speaking, God doesn't look at America as being the center of anything. Israel is the center. The Jewish people, his covenant people are the center. Jesus came out of the Jewish people, out of God's covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So friends, when we read prophecy, we've got to read prophecy through the lens of what is the biblical nation, the biblical people, the biblical land that is at the center of the world. And I've got to tell you, it is not anything happening in the West. That's why prophecy gets misunderstood when we don't read it through the right lens. 
In chapter 8, we, we, we meet a ruler in chapter 8, a little horn who persecuted Israel and ultimately set up what's called the abomination of desolation in the temple of Jerusalem. He's called the Antichrist of the Old Testament. And you may remember this despicable but remarkable character by the name of Antiochus, who called himself, he was Antiochus IV, but called himself Antiochus Epiphanes, right? So once again, we see another vision of him through this conflict, and he reigned from 175 to 164 BC, and verses 21 to 24 describe Antiochus IV's rise to power. It says he was an illegitimate king. He had no right to reign. He, 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 he was one who seized the throne by flattery. Again, this is a picture of what's coming with the Antichrist later on. And historically, what we know about Antiochus IV and what we've seen both in the vision of chapter 8 and now in the vision of chapter 11. He, he kind of ruled that way. He, he would see cities he wanted, and, and rather than oftentimes go in with a lot of might and power, he'd go in with flattery, and he'd go in, and, and, and he would come with hearts and flowers and, and be all nice and sweet. But his end game, his end game was to take control and to rule. But he would come in. I have the answer. I have hearts and flowers. I'm going to help you. I'm going to, I'm going to be the one to, to, to help you. He liked being in charge. Verses 25 to 28 describe a fact that during this war, the north and the south that's going on, when he began to take power of the north and Syria, he was upset at Egypt and he began to have a retaliation with Egypt. They had a peace treaty that was signed. It was broken by both rulers. And, and look at Daniel chapter 11, starting in verse 29. At the appointed time, he would invade the south again, but this time the outcome will be different than what it was before. Ships, and this is very important, ships of the western coastlands will oppose him, and he'll lose heart. Then he'll turn back, and in losing heart, turn back, and he'll vent his fury against the Holy Covenant. What's the Holy Covenant? That is Israel, God's people, right? He'll return and show favor to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. So the, the Ptolemies, remember down south, Egypt and, 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 and all of that, they were sick of Antiochus. They were sick of his attacks. They were sick of his retaliation. So you know what they did? They decided to call on a new power that was gaining, a new nation that was gaining power in the West by the name of Rome. And so they, they came to Rome and they said, hey, Rome, will you help us? And they had an alliance with Rome. And you know what Rome did? Rome took their ships and they began to sail with their ships right up, of you know, history, right up to the west. And they, they, they said to Antiochus, listen, if you're going to attack them, then you're going to attack us. And they drew a circle around him and they said, before you step out of the circle, you better decide what you're going to do. And Antiochus IV was humiliated by the Romans and he lost heart and he wouldn't, he didn't want to attack the, the he, he, he said, I'm, I can't attack, I'm not going to do that. So he lost heart, tail between his legs, he had to get back up to the north, guess what he had to go through? What's the center? Israel and Jerusalem, and so he decided to vent his fury against them. And, 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 and that's, what, that's what happened, public humiliation. He goes from south to north in Jerusalem, and this is Daniel eleven thirty one. it's fulfilled right here. He armed, his armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple forces, fortress, excuse me, and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. And we know by history that Antiochus IV came in. 
He forced his way into Jerusalem, forced his way into the temple, stopped all the temple sacrifice, and desecrated the temple by sacrificing a pig on the altar and setting up an idol of, of Zeus right in the midst of the temple. And it was called the abomination of desolation as he literally uh, caused the temple to become unclean and all of the sacrifices stopped. Until a group of people called the Maccabeans rose up. They began to rise up. And, and historically what we're going to find is that there is still a future, a future abomination of desolation. Jesus talks about it. And Matthew chapter 24 that takes place into 70th week. And the final verses of history of this portion are uh, verses 32 to 35. And they highlight this remarkable people, the Maccabees, the sons of an old man by the name of Matthias who rebelled against Antiochus and who for years began to fight against him until they took back the temple and until they began to cleanse the temple once again and they cleansed the sanctuary and they restored the Jewish offerings. And we talked about that is how the story and the feast of Hanukkah came to be about was from that story in history. It's a remarkable section of scripture. God would do exploits and, and uh, they would receive little help, but yet they received help from the Lord. Uh, the Maccabees did end up appealing to the Romans. If you know anything about history, they also appealed to the Romans for help. The Romans didn't like Antiochus and they knew that. And so they appealed to the Romans for help, but the very appeal that they did to the Romans ended up leading to the Romans taking control over the entire region and leading to the place of where it was that the time when Jesus would come. The Romans being the ones who were occupying, the ones who had created peace across uh, this, this, this peace that they had, uh, the Roman roads and all of those kinds of things all came from this section. And as predicted, there was great persecution, a great falling by the sword and flame, by captivity and plunder for some days. This is a part of the vision. And then there seems to be a break. Verse 35 and verse 36, there's a, there's a break, kind of like the 69 weeks and then the 70th week that is yet to come. There seems to be a break. There seems to be a pause that takes place in Scripture. And while Daniel 11, as we've said, 2 to 35 is history, Daniel eleven thirty six all the way to chapter 12 and verse 4 is future prophecy that is yet to be fulfilled. And so section number two doesn't deal with history any longer, but rather it begins to deal with the Antichrist and his coming. Let's read verse 36. The king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every God and will say unheard of things against the God of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed for what has been determined must take place. Again, this is a, this is a switch. You have to switch gears because Antiochus didn't continue to reign and there was not another king that continued to reign after him and so what we have is a break like the 69 to the 70 years now we have a break in scripture that points to something future this 70th week this final week and verses 36 to 45 begin to give us a description of this king who would be raised up this one who in the end times that we call the antichrist would come and let me give you a little bit of a synopsis that I found helpful from Dr. David Jeremiah. He writes this, that he gives these points. 
First, the Antichrist, according to verse 36, will do what he pleases. The king will do as he pleases. That's what it says. Secondly, he will deify himself. And we've seen this before in other prophecies and other places that we know about Scripture, that he will exalt and magnify himself above every god. That's what it means by Antichrist. He will say, I am God. That's what, when he gave his name Antiochus Epiphanes, it was that he was the exalted one. He was, he was the God above gods. Worship me. Taking on the very nature of Satan, correct? Isn't that why he fell from heaven? Because he wanted God's place. He wanted God's glory. He wanted the exaltation. Thirdly, he will, he will defy the true God. Verse 36, he will say unheard of things, the God of gods. And then he will disregard all religion. That's verse 37. He shall regard neither the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor any God. In other words, he might start out like he's got some religious background, some religion in him. There's something in him. But then when he raises up, he will defy that. He will push that away and he will be his own. You will worship me. You'll worship me. He will devote himself to the military. His power will be military might. Verse 38, he shall honor the God of fortresses. And he will declare war against foreign powers. Verse 39, he'll attack the mightiest fortress with the help of a foreign God. And then he will defend himself against other nations. Verse 40, at the time of the end of the king of the south will engage in battle. And the king of the north will storm out against him in chariots and cavalry and a great fleet of ships. And he will invade many countries and sweep through them like a flood. His power will be military power. He will come in and he will rule and he will have military power and he will sweep across and he will be given, uh, he will be given that power to defeat some early enemies. Verses 41 and 42, he will also invade the beautiful land. Remember what we talk about the beautiful land was what? Israel. Israel. So he's going to invade Israel. He's going to break that covenant. He's going he's to end up coming and in, invading the beautiful land. Many countries will fall, but Edom, Moab, and the leaders of Ammon will be delivered from his hand. He will extend his power over many countries. Egypt will not escape. So he's going to have a reign. Make no mistake about it. When the Antichrist comes, he's going to rule and he's going to be given victory. Even over Israel, the beautiful land, and over Egypt and over others. He will have power. He will also develop great wealth. Verse 43. He will gain control of the treasuries, treasures of gold and silver and all the riches of Egypt with the Libyans and the Cushites. And if you want to know who the Cushites are, that's Ethiopia. So we're talking about northern Africa in submission. And verse 45 says, but he will be defeated in the end. And that's the hope. He will be defeated and no one will come to his aid. Verse 45, yet he will come to his end. No one will help him. Friends, I, I, why did I share all of that? Because I want us to understand something. If in great detail, 135 prophecies being fulfilled in just 35 verses of history... And fulfilled down with great detail, why should we not believe that what's coming in the 70th week, that what's happening in terms of the tribulation, that that will not be something that also takes place and happens? 
Many people say, well, the tribulation, I mean, that's just symbolic, right? Revelation, all those, who can really understand? All this stuff is just symbolic. It's just symbolism. It's just, it's just you know, we got to try to figure out what, what does that mean? I'm going to tell you something. When, when scripture shows in great detail, and as we said in chapter 9 with the 69 weeks, great math detail, right down to the very details, why do we think that something else in scripture that is future is not going to be something that will take place and will happen? We need to be aware of it. We need to be aware of it. The 70th week coming is a literal thing that is coming. But it's not where the vision ends. Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1 continues by describing the time of the tribulation that is to come. Look at verse 1, Daniel 12, 1. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, who's, who's your people? Daniel's people, right? The Jewish people. And everyone whose name is found written in the book will be delivered. Remember Michael? We talked about him at the beginning. Daniel chapter 10, we talked about him last week in this unseen battle, the spiritual battle that is taking place that when Daniel had prayed and the messenger that was coming was held up for 21 days, Michael was the one who had come and who had provided the relief and the ability tagged into the fight and allowed the messenger to come and bring the message to, to Daniel. Michael been the one throughout history that has been Israel's protector, has been the one who has fought and who has battled for God's people and for God's plan. And here he shows up again in Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1 talking about what is coming, that he is battling against Satan in his demonic assault. And it says that at the time of the Antichrist in the 70th week, it will be a time of unparalleled distress. Jesus spoke about this unparalleled distress in Matthew chapter 24, verses 15 and 16. So when you see standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation, spoken through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand and let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Jesus says it hasn't happened yet. Yes, there was a historical fulfillment, but it, it hasn't happened yet. This is still coming. Jesus said it's coming. The 70th week is coming. The tribulation is coming throughout Scripture. It goes by other names. 26 times it's called the day of the Lord. In Isaiah 26 and Isaiah 34, it's called the indignation. In Isaiah chapter 63, it's called the day of God's vengeance. In Revelation chapter 6, it's called the great day of his wrath. And later in Revelation 6, it's also called the wrath of the lamb. Which I find kind of interesting. Because a lamb doesn't seem very wrathful. Everybody say a wrathful lamb? The wrath of the lamb. Well, what are we talking about? The wrath of the lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is what John the Baptist called who? Jesus. Jesus, that's right, the Lion of Judah. Revelations chapter 6 through 19 with detail. We don't have time to describe today. Talk about this period of time, this 70th week, this tribulation, and how bad it will be. Let me just give you a summary from some of these passages of Scripture. There will be war, there will be famine. Revelation 6 through 19 says that 25% of the world will be killed. Heavenly bodies falling out of heaven toward the earth. One-third of the earth destroyed. One-third of the seas destroyed. One-third of the fresh water sources on earth eliminated. The release of hell's demons to overrun the earth. The Antichrist and his armies coming and slaughtering millions. 
sores breaking out on people. You think we have health concerns now? Sores breaking out on people, sunlight scorching people, burning them to death, and darkness covering the earth. Friends, a time of unparalleled distress. That's the tribulation. That's what is coming. Right now, we're in the church age. But what's coming is a time of unparalleled distress. The wrath of God being poured out. A time in which the Antichrist will have his way. And it is a time that the Bible describes as the tribulation or the great tribulation. God pours out his wrath on the ungodly. But thankfully, it's not where the vision ends. And the third section that we see here in Daniel chapter 12 is what I call hope and response. How many of you like some hope today? <laughs> some hope today. We look around our world and it is bad. We need to pray for Afghanistan. We need to pray for those that are still stuck. We need to pray for the families of those that lost loved ones, those soldiers that gave their lives serving our country. We need to pray for our nation. But friends, as bad as it is, as bad as Ida is bearing down, as bad as it's been around our world in the earthquakes in Haiti, it is nothing compared to what it's going to be in the time of the tribulation. And if in great detail, history has proven itself, why should we think that this is not what will be carried out in the days to come? But there is hope. But there is hope. Look at the latter half of verse 3. But at that time, everyone whose name is found written in the book will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Friends, look what it says. Everyone whose name is found written in the book of life will be delivered. Will be delivered. And this is not the only time we see this. In the, in the book of Revelation, John had a vision. And towards the end of that vision in Revelation 20, 15, he said this. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown in the lake of fire. So we know that the book of life is real. In fact, throughout scripture, there's many references to the book or the book of life. And having our name in the book of life throughout scripture, it's mentioned both in the Old and the New Testament. And it refers to a ledger of those who have been made right with God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Through faith. Those who have been made right with God. Remember what scripture says. Paul wrote it in Romans that the wages of sin is death but the gift of God is what eternal life in Christ Jesus all have sinned right and fallen short of his glory there's a problem it's a sin problem it's a sin problem that all of us have had but but we don't have to endure the wrath of God we don't have to endure what is coming those whose names are written in the book of life will be delivered scripture says why? Because Jesus paid the sin debt. The debt that we owe, Jesus paid the sin debt. The way to be forgiven and made right with God is when we place our faith in Jesus Christ and we ask for his forgiveness and grace. That's the hope. And when we receive that and we're made, we're made right with God, we are saved from wrath. Daniel 12, 1, those whose name is found in the written in the book will be delivered. I don't know about you, but I want my name in the book. 
I want my name in the book. And it doesn't come by being a good person. There's a lot of good people that will be going to hell because they're not saved people through, the, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. All of, our, all of our righteous acts are as filthy rags, Scripture says in Isaiah. Uh, all of our righteousness, why? Because even good people go to hell. Because it's not about being good. It's about being saved, rescued, delivered. It's about receiving Christ's salvation. And that deliverance comes with a promise of resurrection life. Look at the, the end of, 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 of verse 2. Right, multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake to some to everlasting life. Yet at the same time, there's a resurrection of the dead. Did you realize that? It's not just a resurrection of, of, of those who are right with God. There's a resurrection of the dead that will be punished in the lake of fire. Those to shame and everlasting contempt is what verse 2 says. But Paul gives this hope to the Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 to 18, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel. Who's the archangel? Michael, right? And with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and left will be caught up together with those in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And we will be with the Lord forever. And Paul says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. That's where we, that's when you heard the term rapture. Rapture. Rapture is a catching up, a catching up of God's people. Those that have, have died in Christ and those who are alive and yet remain will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And the Bible says it'll be in the twinkling of an eye that no man knows the day or the hour. But you and I, today is the day of salvation. For you and I, today is the day to get right with God by placing our faith in Jesus and asking for Him to cleanse us with the blood that He shed on the cross for our sin. It is the only way to have our name written in the book of life and today is the day of salvation today is the day to be spared from the wrath of God our resurrection happens at the rapture of the church the 70th week of Daniel is coming friends and this is the day to be right with God this is the day to have your name written in the book of life it's a promise also of reward in verse 3 those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. You know, that's the, the ability to reflect God's glory. Stars simply reflect. They simply reflect the sun. Friends, we get the chance to reflect. As for you, Daniel, in verse 13, Daniel twelve thirteen. as for you, go your way to the end. You will rest, and at the end of days, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. Friends, there's a promised inheritance throughout Scripture. I don't have time to get into it. That's another message for another day. Daniel had been taking, but here's why this was important to Daniel. Because I think sometimes we don't make the connection. We look at this inheritance, but let me, let me bring, it, bring it home. Daniel, as a teenager, was taken away from the land of Israel. Do you remember what the land of Israel was called? It was called the promised land, right? God had promised it to his people. And do you remember in the book of Joshua what they did? They, they took pieces of the land, sections of the land, and that land was divided up and it was given to families. And those families passed that land down from generation to generation. 
It's why, it's why that, 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 that Naboth with his vineyard, if you remember in the Old Testament, Naboth, uh, uh, wicked Ahab wanted Naboth's vineyard because it was near the near, near his palace and, and he wanted it. And Naboth wasn't willing, no matter how much money the king offered, to give up his inheritance because that was his family's inheritance. That was his family's place. That was what was important. So now Daniel is taken away in exile and seems to have lost his inheritance, his place in Israel. But look at what's promised here. Oh, you may not be able to go back to to Israel, Daniel, and have your inheritance there, but there is an inheritance that is awaiting you who is faithful in heaven. And friends, I've got to tell you, there is an inheritance that is awaiting each of us. Abraham longed for an inheritance of a nation that was not his own. Uh, He lived in tents, is what Hebrews 11 says. Because there was another inheritance that he was looking to. Friends, all that is here will pass away, will be destroyed, will be done. But there is an inheritance that will last. And Jesus said, store up for yourselves, not treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Come on. I don't know about you, but I long for that day. Like Paul, when he wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 8. Now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, come on, but to all who have longed for his appearing. Friends, do you long for his appearing? I long for his appearing. I long for his appearing. Oh, the tribulation is going to come and the Antichrist is going to have his way and it's going to seem like wickedness is prevailing for a little while. But make no mistake, it is a part of the plan of God. He is still in charge. He is still in control and he wins in the end. And God promises those whose name is in the book of life will receive deliverance, salvation, and reward. Now let me bring it to a close. (laughs) He provided that historical fulfillment to point to the fact that the future fulfillment is coming. Don't miss it. Don't miss the day of your visitation. It's coming. So let me close with a story by a biblical scholar, Dr. E. English, a man from Long Island. He says, satisfied a lifelong dream. This is, this is back before the high-tech stuff that we have. He had a lifelong dream of buying a high-quality barometer. And when he unpacked the instrument, he was dismayed to find that the needle appeared to be stuck at hurricane. He took that barometer and he shook it and he tried to get the needle to move and tried to get the needle to change, but it was just stuck. And so he concluded it was broken. And so he got himself down there and he wrote a scathing letter to the store and the company in which he had purchased it from. And on his way to back into the city of New York in order to, to, uh, to get to work, he took that letter and he stuck it in the mailbox and he went to work and he was there all day and then he came back in the evening and he re- when he returned in the evening he found not only was the barometer missing but so was his house because a hurricane was coming the Bible is the barometer and it's pointing us to what is coming But it also gives us hope and how we can prepare 
and be ready and escape the wrath of God. So the question comes down to, what are you going to do with this information? What are you going to do? Are you going to make sure that you're right with the Lord? Are you going to make sure that you have placed your faith in Jesus and that he is the way to salvation and forgiveness in your life? Or are you going to continue to harden your heart and just pretend that the Bible is just a bunch of fairy tales, even though that there are more prophecies fulfilled than you can count? You'd rather put your faith in a YouTube video or what somebody posted on Facebook than the word of God that's been proven over and over and over again. Today is the day of salvation. You can harden your heart against God, but understand this. There is a judgment day coming, and there is a wrath coming. But God in his love and mercy has provided an answer, and his name is Jesus. And today, your name can be written in the Lamb's Book of Life by placing your faith in Jesus. And I want to give you that opportunity today as we close our service. Let's bow our heads. Thank you, Jesus. If you're here today, maybe watching online, and you have not given your life to Christ, you've not surrendered your life to Jesus, you don't know for sure that your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And today you just feel that conviction of the Holy Spirit, that drawing to Jesus. Today you'd say, you know, I want to surrender right now today. I want to surrender my life to Jesus. I need his forgiveness and grace in my life, in my heart. I just want you to slip up your hand if you're in here. I want you to let us know online. Put in the comments or email us. Respond on the notes section about I've made a decision. But you want to give your life to Christ. Anybody at all today? I want to give my life to Jesus today. I want to make sure that my life is written in the Lamb's book of life. Let's pray. And if you want to give your life to Jesus, will you just pray right now this prayer with me? Dear Jesus, I thank you today that you love me and that you gave your life for me. Today I ask you to forgive me of my sin, to cleanse my life and to make me right with you. I surrender my life and I give my life to you. And I receive your forgiveness and your grace. I place my faith in you today. Transform me and make me more into your image. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. We pray that you're encouraged by this message. For more information, about Painesville Assembly of God, visit PainesvilleAG.com.